Welcome to the Ed Alia Podcast, hosted by Peter Kranitz and Brad Davis. Each episode focuses on a concept that represents a fundamental issue in contemporary life, examining it through works of culture and philosophy that help us understand its impact and explain our present situation. I'm Brad Davis, and joining me is... Uh, I'm Peter Kranitz. Uh, and today we're going to be discussing, sort of in light of the coronavirus quarantine and uh, the situation we, we find ourselves all in, uh, isolation and what, what it means for an individual to be isolated in society or not. Um, and so this is our very first episode of the podcast. Um, Peter and I are friends from college. We both graduated in Lewis, from Lewis and Clark College in Portland, Oregon in 2018. And right now, Peter, want to tell us what, what you're doing? What am I doing? I'm doing a whole lot of nothing. Um, I'm not leaving my apartment. Uh, I'm in Brooklyn, New York, so right in the episode of this epidemic, um, spending most of my time, uh, pretty much all of my time indoors, uh, you know, working a little bit, uh, but mostly just trying to pass the time. Um, so here we are recording a podcast. Wonderful. And and what's your what's your background, Peter? And what what are your interests, particularly literary? <laughs> uh, let's see. I studied English at Lewis and Clark. Uh, wrote my thesis on Virginia Woolf and existentialism, which uh, in retrospect doesn't hold up at all, but I thought was brilliant at the time. Um, let's see. I have uh, worked freelance as a copy editor. Uh, and I've had a number of, you know, temporary jobs working at publishing houses, things like that. Wonderful. What about you, Brad? Um, so I, I studied political theory and, and uh, the Middle East and, and spent some time in Morocco on a Fulbright uh, grant. Now I'm in California, just outside of the Bay Area, uh, where I'm teaching and, and preparing to go go to to grad school and both of us uh need something a little bit more to occupy our time in an intellectual space so hopefully this will be good fruits of that labor and we hope you the audience really enjoy this journey with us so coronavirus <laughs> let's let's dive in <laughs> so so the thing with the coronavirus is that it's killing a lot of people um, and to prevent that, we all have to stay inside our homes uh, as, way more than we ever used to. Everyone's working from home now. Um, there's all the bars and restaurants are closed. Uh, it's impossible to go out, basically, um, and to see people in any sort of public space. And even in a private space, is incredibly discouraged um, because of the risk of viral transmission. Uh, so we wanted to look at what exactly it even means to be isolated in 2020 um, and how that really impacts people who are isolated, as in everybody. Yeah, and the timing of this quarantine uh, sort of serendipitous for the start of this, but our hope is both in this episode and everything to continue, we'll be able to investigate uh, individual concepts that are pertaining to political circumstances or contemporary life, quarantine right now, and f try and look at different works of art, uh, pieces of philosophy, and, and other uh, cultural touchstones to, to understand how we can interpret the world. 
around us. And though the proximal cause for this episode certainly is coronavirus and quarantine, isolation is really is a problem that that seems uh, made for the 21st century in all, all regards. It, it's been a, a concern of a lot of thinkers, as we keep moving our bonds to our home communities are, are weakening, people are going all over the world and, and don't seem to have as much connecting themselves uh, to family, home, or to one another. And the sense of modern malaise and isolation going along with it just seems to, to keep growing. So hopefully we can make a little bit more sense out of this. Right. At the same time, though, it's also kind of paradoxical in that uh, we have more ways to be connected to people than we ever have before. Like, you know, we're sitting on opposite sides of the country right now talking and having this conversation. I'm looking at your face. Um, there's so many more ways to stay connected to, to family, to friends, to, uh, you know, uh, any other group affiliation you may have uh, than there ever was before, even though there is this prevailing sense of isolation um in general so so i think the the main question that we're really trying to ask here is what really it means to be isolated in the 21st century um and whether or not as a society we can even exist or as individuals within a society we could even exist as isolated atomized beings and to the extent that we can or can't why does this feeling of isolation persist despite truly not ever being alone uh i i think most individuals in their daily life would not be possible to totally cut themselves off from the world around them without some sort of notification some sort of contact message ping it's very difficult so to start off this discussion and try and uh we so to start off this discussion, we're going to go back to a time way prior to when uh, we were so connected and start out with Aristotle and, and his discussion of, of society and its creation. So Aristotle, the, the great Athenian thinker uh, and student of Plato, tried to discuss in his politics how it is that states, or rather the city, comes into being. And, and why it is that we have a political system. And he looks at the first unit of individuality and agency, an individual, a person, and tries to understand why one person can't just live on their own. And it seems for biological reasons, at the very least, natural that one cannot procreate, one cannot uh, do a lot of things just by themselves. And so, therefore, you need some sort of family structure. Uh, perhaps all one works, one to uh, prepare food, perhaps while uh, take care of any children, anything of that sort. So the individual cannot be separated from their family. But in turn, a family isn't self-sufficient on its own. E even if you're uh, you have a family farm and you're able to produce all of your food, at some point... There's either not enough laborers or just not enough resources in your locale to be able to provide for everything you need. And in turn, there might be some degree of trade necessary or, or some degree of exchange for which a larger unit is necessary. And eventually we get to the point 
of a city, a political order, being the smallest unit possible of self-sufficiency, where within everyone has all their needs met, uh, perhaps some luxuries met, everyone is able to live and live a somewhat good life in a city and can't do so at any smaller interval. And that that's why Aristotle thinks that it's natural, that we're, we're political animals. And any, anyone who exists outside of a city would be either subhuman or, or for far beyond the average human in capacity. Right, and I feel like using the word natural in this context almost seems a little bit strange, but when you think about it, there's really no other way for anybody to exist outside of a city, especially uh, today. Um, you know, I go to the grocery store for my food. I don't go into the farm or the backyard or whatever. Um, my water comes from pipes maintained by somebody else. Um, my, you know, I, I rent my apartment. Um, I don't own it outright. I didn't build it myself. All these things uh, are just sort of elements of like codependency that we don't really think of that are really essential to uh, surviving in any capacity. Yeah, and, and for Aristotle, nature and natural has, has a very specific meaning of, of both. It is part of our human nature, what we tend to do. It is something that's going to develop independently, uh, regardless of any actions we try to seek for it. And it is the way that it seems our lives are meant to work out. And if I may read a passage from the politics, Aristotle says that it follows that the state belongs to the class of objects which exist by nature and that the man is by nature a political animal. Anyone who by his nature, not simply by ill luck, has no state, is either too bad or too good, either subhuman or superhuman. He is like the war madman condemned in Homer's words as having no family, no law, no home. For he who is such by nature is mad on war, he is a non-cooperator, like an isolated piece in a game of chess. And then he continues and brings in a different element as to how it may be natural. This coming from our ability to speak to one another, he says, But obviously man is a political animal in the sense in which a bee is not, or any other gregarious animal. Nature, as we say, does nothing without some purpose, and she has endowed man alone among the animals with the power of speech. Speech is something different from voice, which is possessed by other animals also and used by them to express pain or pleasure. For their nature does indeed enable them not only to feel pleasure and pain, but to communicate these feelings to each other. Speech, on the other hand, serves to indicate what is useful and what is harmful, so also what is just and what is unjust. So for Aristotle, in looking at all these different things, and being able to delineate between good and bad, he explains that it is the sharing of a common view in these matters of good and evil, just and just, that makes a household and a state. It's being able to communicate with one another and being able to create and draw on a common experience creates de facto bonds amongst individuals within the family unit and between families and communities and within communities into a real political order of necessity. It couldn't be otherwise. By, by being able to communicate, just the mere thought creates these bonds between individuals. To us today, this seems obviously natural. As Peter was explaining with our landlords or the grocery market, there is a very clear community that we live in. But Aristotle does give the possibility that someone could be 
inhuman or inhumane in the ordering of their lives and live outside of some sort of community in a way that is grotesque or, or unnatural. And the best example we, we could find to think of this is the play by English. Now, the, the best example we could think oh, of this Irish. unnatural Irish ordering Samuel of Beckett. existing outside of community is the 1953 play by uh, Irish playwright Samuel Beckett, Waiting for Godot, an absolute classic. Yeah, this is uh, one of my favorite plays. It's absolutely hilarious. Um, if you haven't seen a production before, haven't read it, uh, you could easily find uh, a PDF of it online, or YouTube has uh, an excellent production of it. Uh, in full available on there for free. Uh, highly recommend checking it out. Um, Waiting for Godot is a story about two men, uh, Vladimir and Estragon, uh, waiting for Godot. It is all in the title. Um, they're standing in more or less a, a wasteland. There's nothing around them. I think there's a tree, I think, is, is specifically listed as being near them. Um, and they kind of have this back-and-forth conversation about uh, what they're doing and how long they've been doing it for. And it all is, you know, you kind of get the sense that they've been doing this every day as far as anyone can remember and will continue to wait uh, forever uh, until Godot shows up. And it's pretty unclear whether or not Godot even exists or who Godot or what Godot is uh, from the play. Um, Beckett actually has a bit of a different perspective on... Uh, what it means to speak than than Aristotle does. Beckett is often very interested in uh, the people who our society throws out willingly, in a way, the the old and the physically disabled or uh, in other way undesirable type of people, um, both in Waiting for Godot, where the characters have... One of them, I think, has foot problems, and I believe the other one has kidney problems. Um, they're constantly complaining about them. Um, they, these are the people who tend to be forced into an outside situation. Uh, his novels, uh, Molloy and Malone Dies, are also great examples of elderly, decrepit, incontinent people, both literally uh, with, you know, with their bodily fluids and shit everywhere um and also incontinent of of mind which is an interesting twist that he does he kind of uses words as a form of excrement in a way and kind of depicts them as such as sort of an unnatural vomiting forth of words that kind of cannot be stemmed um which he shows in Waiting for Godot with a character called Lucky who shows up about a third of the way through, um, who is told to think on the spot, kind of goes on this eight-minute monologue of semi-coherent uh, word vomit. It's, it's amazing. Stop! Forward. Stop! Think! On the other hand, with regard to... Stop! Back! Think! Given... The existence has uttered forth in the public works of Puncher and Watman of a personal god. Qua, 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 qua. Yeah, uh, as outsiders, as individuals outside of society, we kind of see that there is nothing. We don't even get the sense that these two men uh, eat or drink or even sleep. Um, they are just uh, isolated 
uh, atomized beings. Yeah, and they, though they have this nominal purpose of waiting for the titular Godot, it doesn't seem like they really have any purpose aside from eternally waiting and repeating and repeating and repeating every, everything they do. There's no way for them to interact. There's no real action they do or can take to change their status. And, and there aren't any bonds that they have. Uh, neither of the two main characters particularly care for one another. Um, they're constantly irritated by one another, uh, fighting over boots, fighting over all sorts of things. And it's not clear that there's any way for them to change this. Yeah, they're absolutely powerless to change their situation. There's nothing they could do. Um, and you could say, or you would intuitively think, uh, that these two men aren't actually isolated. They're waiting together, and they encounter these two bizarre figures, Lucky and Pazzo, who pass by them at uh, a couple of different points of the play. But really, they... Uh, they get nothing from each other. They're not really any less alone by the physical proximity of another person. Um, they really just use each other as sort of verbal sparring partners in a way to kind of uh, exercise the muscle of speech without saying anything. Well, and it also seems like they're lacking in food, clothing, shelter, the, the things that Aristotle says we need society for in order to provide sustenance, to in order to be self-sufficient, and these as individuals aren't self-sufficient. They are perpetually waiting for someone else to help them change uh, their their station to to go and do something else. They can't provide for themselves, and mysteriously they seem to remain alive day after day after day. But but the tree uh, in the play is absolutely barren. There's nothing on it. There's no fruit. There there aren't even leaves for them to munch around. Uh, they're left with nothing, getting nothing, and just staying with nothing. I I do think it's interesting that uh, something that Beckett relies on heavily is the idea of gross, as you said, bodily fluids, of real potty humor uh constantly in trying to bring out as much it, it it's striking that in this how unnatural these truly natural things about them are and why i, I guess if there isn't this veneer of civilization over it or what have you, the, the, their excrement is just so much more disgusting out by themselves. Right. I think part of that, too, is sort of uh, a comment on uh, basically what happens when one is no longer able to fulfill living in a society as uh, would be constructed by Aristotle, right? Um, so... As I was saying earlier about the the very elderly and the people with physical uh, disabilities of some sort, uh, really the thing that kind of forces them out of society is their inability to control their basic bodily functions, right? Um, once someone can no longer speak normally, uh, say someone develops Alzheimer's and they can't speak and think 
rationally or in a way that we would consider rationally or someone becomes incontinent uh they you know you kind of throw them in a home you know you put them out of sight uh, is generally the the impulse that our society has for them not so much to integrate them in any way but to force them into a sort of uh godot like wasteland almost um of technically society but not really there um the other night i watched uh this movie by Agnes Varda called Vagabond, and there's this really uh, moving scene near the end where the the main character, who's uh, a homeless woman in France uh, and kind of just a hitchhiker, uh, she gets taken in by someone who had seen her a few weeks earlier. Uh, this woman is a maid for an extremely old woman. Um, this woman's got to be like 90 or something. Uh, her only living relative is a nephew who is waiting for her to die. And the the maid doesn't pay any attention to her, thinks she's just senile, um, and just kind of cleans around her and listens as this woman sort of talks throughout the day. But uh, uh, once Mona, the the titular vagabond, uh, gets into the house and she shares a drink, she has a drink, she has some brandy with this old woman, and they talk and they laugh, and they're both on the couch laughing hysterically. Um, and this woman is clearly very cogent, and she's commenting on how everyone's waiting for her to die, and everyone thinks she's crazy. Um, this old woman who's clearly written off everyone else, uh, only the, the homeless woman who's uh, constantly being told how badly she smells, how terrible she looks, uh, is able to kind of connect with her and to realize that she's also human to see her in that way. Um, sort of an interesting parallel to to Godot's obsession with that, or to Beckett's interest in that uh, those outsider figures. Yeah. Um... I think that is is very much the case uh another another uh wonderful work of art that picks up on this uh, i don't know have you ever watched much it's always sunny in philadelphia a little bit not a ton okay so the show focuses on a bar of um absolute outsiders pe- people who can't really uh keep their own lives going well can't keep their bar uh open in particularly legal healthy or profitable ways but uh nonetheless they they keep going about their lives and just crazy adventures one after another the series finale uh, uh of the show which i highly recommend uh is actually a parody of waiting for Godot. Uh, it's called waiting for big mo and the characters find themselves in a, a laser tag arena waiting for uh, the ultimate laser tagger so they can finally beat his high score. Uh, but he never seems to come, never seems to come play the game. So um, there, there is a sense as an outsider, as someone not when you're not fully integrated into society or if you're isolated in some sort, it does seem like it, it is hard these characters at least all all have extreme difficulty in really doing anything with their lives i they they can't change things on their own end um and they're dependent on others who are never they're perpetually waiting for someone to depend on that never arrives it never never provides for them and and i'm not sure if it, it seems that that maybe that that's one of the most uni- one of the most beneficial aspects of society is having people to depend on, having people that can help either motivate you to leave your spot under the tree, uh, to encourage you to find better life activities than laser tag in your 40s, uh, to, to do all sorts of things, feed yourself, what have you, that 
when you're stuck alone, and I think some of this might fill in the quarantine, the natural reaction seems to be to just sort of stir around and, and do nothing, to watch Netflix all day, end on end and end, some some crappy show that that's mindless, uh, more more extreme as the Godot figures to just sit and stir around in your own excrement to to just become this gross gross piece of nothingness that that doesn't have potential to change or potential to move. See, I'd see sort of as a counterpoint to that uh, this next movie that we wanted to talk about, The Lighthouse, uh, which is made by Robert Eggers, came out last year. Um, which is, I think, heavily indebted to Waiting for Godot. It's two men, Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe, uh, trapped on uh, an island attending a lighthouse, um, and a storm comes in. The ship that's supposed to relieve them after a month doesn't end up coming. Uh, I'd say sort of as a counterpoint to what Brad was just talking about uh, with the, the impulse to do nothing, uh, it's completely the opposite in the lighthouse because they need to work to keep the lighthouse on at the very least and also to feed themselves to uh you know keep themselves warm to keep their shelter in shape um it is a a more sort of productive form of isolation they end up in um even if it ultimately is just as or more destructive um but superficially they're they're doing a lot more and they're doing a lot more to almost build a society outside of society, a society of two, in a way. I I definitely agree. We see uh, throughout the film, uh, Robin Pattinson's character is working incredibly uh, hard, uh, badgered on, on by the captain, played by Defoe, and definitely doing backbreaking labor over and over and over again. But I'm not sure there isn't sort of that both... They're stuck on this lighthouse island and, and literally isolated, but they are incapable of a certain type of action. They're incapable of meaningfully connecting with one another, with explaining themselves to one another. They're incapable of even on their own trying to make peace with their situation where they're at. Their bodies may be doing physically more, than the characters in Waiting for Godot, but their minds might be doing even less. And as we see throughout the film, are constantly degenerating and degenerating and degenerating. I yeah, I mean, Robert Pattinson's mind is at the very least fantasizing about mermaids, so I think that's pretty productive. <laughs> but, but not in any way that's helpful or beneficial to, to him. And, and I think the idea of speech act comes in Again, uh, when Aristotle is talking about being able to agree on what's right and wrong, just and unjust, there is none of that in this movie. They they have very differing opinions on, on what should happen. Uh, Robert Pattinson seems to be very by the book when he comes to the island as a new new lighthouse tender, and Defoe has his own way of doing things that do not follow any rules and, and refuses to follow them. They they can't communicate with one another. They're not on the same page. And to the extent that they seem to try, Defoe just repeats old sea shanties to him and forces him to drink a little bit more. Which, to an extent, works pretty well. Um, after Robert went, a little bit. But eventually it doesn't. It, it doesn't work out so well for them. Um, but... 
one of the more interesting things about this that also draws back into Godot is sort of the sense of uh, losing one's mind, of, of kind of a descent into, into madness through that isolation, um, through that sense of repeating a meaningless task over and over again, of there being no end in sight, um, eventually causes uh, both characters uh, Robert Pattinson, I think, ultimately more so than Willem Dafoe's character, uh, to really snap and to go insane in a way that really would likely not have happened back on the mainland within the strictures of a normal society. And so, what is it that that is differentiating here? Because I, not to be too critical, but most of our lives are just about as repetitive as uh, Pattinson's with, with their own work. Um, and there is no end in sight. Mo most people don't know uh, when their specific job or position is going to change or their career. Certainly, we have no idea when our lives themselves want. And we go through these daily motions again and again and again. And perhaps you want to say some of us go a little crazy from it, but certainly not like this. I What is it about... about being in a community unlike the this limited one of Defoe and Pattinson that prevents us from going mad in our daily repetition. Well, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre would respond by saying that uh, in our daily lives, you actually have a choice. You know, we can, there's something else that we can do. We, by choosing to, to get up every day and go to work and do the same bullshit every day, um, we are, in a sense, choosing to do that. Uh, any over-identification with the roles that we choose to play is, uh, is a mistake, whereas in The Lighthouse, there really isn't an option, you know? Either, either you work for your dinner or you die, um, you know? Either you... The only... There's much less freedom afforded one when you're trapped on an island and forced to survive um, than when you are within a, a well-built and well-structured society. And so maybe to help us understand why that is, I'd, I'd like to bring in um, what's known, known as social contract theory. And that is an aspect of political theory uh, that tries to describe why it is that our societies are created the way they do and how we go from what might be called a, a state of nature into a state of society. And the, the two most famous thinkers uh, that deal with this problem in, in fairly similar ways are, are uh, Thomas Hobbes and, and John Locke, both Englishmen. Uh, Hobbes lived from about 1588 to 1679 and Locke from 1632 to 1704. And the concept that particularly Hobbes starts out with is he tries to create a story of what what human life is like outside of society. He begins with a discussion of the state of nature. When we're running around by ourselves, what does life look like? And his state of nature seems to look a good bit uh, like the lighthouse in terms of, of violence and, and fighting between one another. He, he thinks that if we don't have government, if we don't have society... It is, as he describes, a war of all against all. Life is uh, nasty, brutish, short, that any individual you see running through the forest is going to be a competitor for food, a competitor for shelter. And so naturally, 
conflict has to emerge as one tries to survive and secure their position against another. And so for Hobbes, he, he thinks that we join societies, we come together uh, as groups of individuals just for the sake of protection against this, that we give up power to one individual or one specific political authority, be it a democratic legislature or a king, that is able to say definitively, this is what's right, this is what's wrong, this is the law, this is against it. And if you disagree with the norms of the community, you're expelled back into a state of nature where they'll try to destroy you. But so long as you're willing to give up your right to violence against one another, so long as you're willing to pacify yourself, you're going to want to join one of these communities for some form of protection so that, so that you aren't in a constant state of war as in nature. And that creates a social condition, a, a political state. And Locke is very similar in this, uh, although his regards are much more about um, economics and property and how we sort of join a society, uh, join in government, we agree to political cooperation with one another in order to have fair judges who can uh, be able to say who gets what property or enforce contracts wherein outside of political life, our state of nature isn't quite as violent as Hobbes, but Locke would say, we really have no recourse to make sure what is ours stays ours and someone else can steal it without, without any way of punishing them. Yeah, so what we see in the lighthouse is something sort of uh, in attempt at instating that that rule, right? Willem Dafoe's character kind of tries to create these strictures and these uh, these sort of laws of the island almost that he tries to get Robert Pattinson's character to abide by, which then ultimately end up uh, not working out so well uh, because he refuses to buy into them in a society of two if one person decides not to play along, you don't get very far. Yeah, and it, it breaks down right back into Hobbes' idea of all against all in, in violent conflict. Um, not to spoil the movie too much, but certainly if there's no coercive apparatus, you, you can't prevent people from, from fighting violently. And perhaps one of the biggest contrasts between these two is just that the extent to which government is a, a coercion against uh, conflict and violence, or just a way of, of sort of making things a little bit more equitable. Should we turn to Sauvage Gijac and his take on this quarantine? Yeah, yeah. So maybe some of our listeners are, are familiar with Zizek, uh, a very entertaining uh, and at times comical. Is he Estonian or Slavonian? Uh, I think he's Slovenian. Slovenian, pardon me. A uh, Slovenian uh, philosophy professor who tries to view the world from a very idiosyncratic but uh, somewhat Marxist lens in, in terms of how um, society is structured. Yeah, so uh, back in February, uh, the Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben wrote a piece for an Italian publication uh, denouncing the idea of quarantine as an effective way for handling the coronavirus and basically saying that 
uh, in a quarantine, we are all reduced to, quote, bare life. And that's sort of a mockery of what human existence should be. They were unable to go out and socialize and have a beer at the bar, or go to a concert or something. It means that we are essentially no more than animals. Um, and that the state is forcing us into this position. Uh, Zizek responded by saying that actually... A quarantine is the only thing that we can do to remain human. That if we don't quarantine, people die. That is barbaric. Um, and that the quarantine is the only thing that we could do to uh, basically continue to be humans and to respect other people as humans as well. Yeah, and there's this really interesting conflict between the two of them who... Generally, I, I would consider within similar schools uh, of thought, but Zizek speaks of quarantine being a form of class solidarity, uh, in a way opposed to opposed to sort of government control. And so far as individuals are taking responsibility in their own terms for the welfare of one another, in a way that he thinks foreshadows his own very specific concept of what uh, communism could be, uh, of of people being responsible for their neighbors and, and acting for their own political good. And so for him, quarantine really is a way of embracing your own political power and using it as an individual, contra the state trying to impose any sort of means of uh, public health control. Now, go ahead. go ahead. Zizek does, though, advocate for there being strict enforcement of quarantine as well. He's not just saying that we should do it because it's good for each other. He's saying that the state should also be enforcing that because it's good for the individuals. Um, and he says that he argues for that as uh, what real international solidarity would be, too, is a full international quarantine uh, and coordination for producing and distributing medical supplies and care as needed um so he's arguing for people to do it for the individuals and to respect the dignity of other people but also that there should be interestingly enough and sort of against what one probably typically think of uh, Zizek's points of view uh he's arguing for there also to be state enforcement of i do it. think I do think the, those are sort of mirrors uh, of one another, though. Uh, to go back again to Aristotle, when we're talking about uh, families and communities building up to a political authority, I think Zizek is viewing governments as sort of individuals on a larger scale in this context. For his idea of sort of global communism, a, a, a world united in solidarity to one another, just as individuals, we opt into this decision of quarantine for the benefit of our communities. The states in unison would be exemplifying some sort of solidarity by enforcing a quarantine or promoting a quarantine when they're working for the benefit of one another as a whole, not just for the individual states. Right, right. It's sort of a, a benevolent big brother type thing. Yeah, yeah. And... I mean, benevolent and perhaps even more authoritarian than Big Big Brother. But 
that really gets to Agamben's concern. And one of the things he's talking about in this essay is a concept known as the state of exception. And this is sort of a, a complicated one, and it comes originally from another uh, philosopher, the German, very controversial legal theorist, uh, Carl Schmitt. And so Agamben tries to develop Schmitt's theory of of the state of exception, wherein in everyday politics and everyday governance, we know the way our society is supposed to act. We have agreed to a common set of laws. Generally, we have constitutions. You could look up in a legal code how you're supposed to act in a specific circumstance. And if, say, you surpass the speed limit, you know that in a court, there's a specific punishment for it. You know how that will be meted out. You know what determines your fines for a speeding ticket. That is everyday life. The state of exception is what happens perhaps when there's a political crisis or emergency, particularly uh, in a state of war between states, between governments. And that is when the political authority is given the opportunity to act outside of any laws, where laws no longer matter. And it's the judgment, the intuition of the political authority, what might be called the political sovereign, to determine what is and isn't just, what is and isn't uh, punishable, and, and what the consequences of any punishment should be. And so... Should be. Um, and... This state of exception, Agamben uh, fears, is Agamben fears that this state of exception, that quarantine and the current uh, pandemic governance uh, bring about, is forcing us into sort of a state of perpetual war, where the governments can act as if we're under constant threat of an enemy and can do things that may or may not be legal in ordinary life and is fearful of the ramifications this has on the liberties of individuals. And he points to 9-11 as another example of a state of exception, following terrorist attacks both here in the United States and later on in various places in Europe, the surveillance state that grew, most notably with the Patriot Act here in the U.S., and the suspension of some civil liberties. He's fearful that governments are using this as an excuse to perpetually be able to act outside the confines of law to curtail individuals and grow in their own power. So I guess the question then is, is are they actually, is the response too much? And does it, eh. so I guess the question is, does it really matter how extreme the government's response is right now if it's saving lives? And if, everything but our ability to gather in large groups in public places in, in the flesh, you know, still have as big of a Zoom meeting as you want. Um, does that do something significant to us as individuals and as a society? And for Zizek, the political enforcement or the social encouragement of a quarantine is a way of preventing any sort of isolation. It's a way of creating solidarity where all individuals within the political uh, establishment and every political order within the world are united 
and no one is kicked out of the community uh, in any sort of sense. Everyone's protected. Now, for a Gombin, he's fearful that what this provides, the state of exception, allows the government to choose any individual it wants to isolate or groups of individuals, any community, it can just decide is harmful to the rest and not to be excluded from political life and is pushed back into a state of nature. And so you were talking earlier about um, perhaps when uh, one's mental faculties are no longer with them and they're placed in a uh, home of some sort or are... when. You were speaking earlier when someone's mental faculties might not be all about them and they're placed in some home to live. That might not be up to them and they don't necessarily consent to it, but they're being placed in a helpless situation without any recourse from it. And the Gombin is fearful that the government can do this to anyone now once we live in the state of exception. And once we get used to the government acting this way, if the government wants to decide all the elderly are susceptible to this and ought to just be forgotten, then so be it. Or if they want to decide that any group within society is unworthy of protection, they can easily ostracize them. And again, he points very heavily to the um, political and legal Islamophobia that followed uh, 9-11 and other similar terrorist attacks and the way... um, Muslims have been living in sort of a surveillance state where their religious activities are um, are constantly monitored, uh, unlike any others here in the U.S. And so to return yet again to Aristotle, the tensions present in here is if a government's allowed to ostracize someone from the whole, to isolate them, what does that do to the things that we're trying to protect via quarantine? The material uncertainty of jobs, the economy, of having food or masks or ventilators or any sort of thing, or the speech we're trying to protect by individuals and being able to contribute to political life, being able to have your express oneself. So we kind of wandered a little bit afield of the question that Hobbes, uh, Hobbes and Locke sort of propose and Aristotle of how society is formed. Um, but in Yojimbo, we could kind of see a, a 1961 Akira Kurosawa film. Uh, we could sort of see a society beginning to just break down back into a state of nature in a way. Um, this movie is about a, uh, an outsider, a samurai, a uh, master of a samurai, wandering around and coming across a village that is in the middle of a conflict between the two major cartels within it, the uh, silk merchant and the sake distiller. Um, and the entire town is shut down, kind of similar to, to a quarantine in a way, but everyone's still allowed to go to the brothels and to gamble um just all the all the businesses are are completely shut down aside from those controlled by the individual cartels um and so the samurai uh decides that he's going to clean the town up and get it back into working order um 
before he kind of enters into this town, he is quite literally directionless as an individual outside of the society, sort of similar to uh, Vladimir and Estragon in a way, and waiting for Godot. Um, he's literally wandering around the countryside at one point early on. I think the first scene in the movie, he finds a stick on the ground, and he comes to a crossroads, and he tosses the stick in the air, and whichever direction the stick points towards, he goes. Um, he has no real purpose or anything and he's seen as basically nothing by the people he encounters um he is called a dog more than once um until he proves that he can cut people up pretty well with his sword and then they start to respect him um but until then until they see that he has that power he is uh he is nothing to any all the people that he encounters um and Representative of some of the other famous Kurosawa films, particularly Seven Samurai, Yojimbo also represents very much the archetype we've constructed of present these samurai films and in uh, popular westerns of an individual outside of society wandering on their own. And the cowboy in, in our popular imagination is tough, hardened, um, capable of handling themselves. but. In all these various works, being alone on the prairie, uh, riding one's horse around, traveling the countryside, never really is, is enough. There, there isn't any sense of meaning created from it. One, I don't know. Sorry, that was that was good. You were you were going somewhere good. Yeah. Um. Yeah. One of the interesting things about this is that as an individual, the the samurai here, or um, in, as an analog to the cowboy in the American westerns, the spaghetti westerns of around the same time period, um, there's no this individual has no purpose until he gets to the town that's uh, at war with itself. Uh, he has nothing going for him. He's broke. Uh, he has to uh, basically is reduced to um, begging for water, um, getting called a dog while doing so. Um, and he relies on the charity of other people to eat. Uh, he has nothing on his own. Uh, once he proves that he's a, a capable swordsman, people will begin to treat him differently. But they only do that because they think that he can kill some people for them. Um, and he only does that for money, too. Uh, something very mercenary and something... Uh, yeah, there there is something very mercenary about him. And I think it's present in a number of western movies that have sort of gathered popular imagination lately starting with oh what was that uh one with tommy lee jones as the sheriff and javier uh as the the murder yeah no no country for old man uh which sort of on the other side the the character in yojimbo is is trying to do some some good there's morally admirable things about him no country for old men are uh, the antagonist is about as despicable a killer as as one could have but we see in the, these gruff anti-social types of both the killer and, and the lawman uh played by tommy lee jones as independent as they'd like to see themselves as perhaps capable of surviving in nature on their own 
they need other people to give some sort of meaning in their lives. Uh, the project of uh, assassinating or hunting down an assassin uh, give, gives order to their lives. We see this also in the most recent Coen Brothers movie, uh, Ballad of Buster Scruggs, where each of the uh, outlaws or gunmen or various characters uh, going on their own through the West are in this beautiful state of nature where they're able to wander freely, enjoy themselves. But particularly in the first uh, vignette, it is quickly violent being by yourself like that. And as we see in later one, a woman on a, on a wagon train, there's no love out by yourself outside of a community. Isolation just doesn't promote any sort of happiness. Right, and I mean, and in Yojimbo in particular, uh, on a very, very basic level, the start of the movie, the samurai is starving uh, when he stumbles into the town and uh, is literally only able to survive because the, the old man who owns the restaurant in town gives him food for free. Um, is kind enough to, to feed him. Otherwise, he would have starved to death on the prairie or whatever. Um, really, a, that very, very basic level, he wouldn't be able to survive. And I think that that's part of what makes Yojimbo so sort of interesting is that um, he, as an outsider, is able to sort of understand the value of a well-functioning society. And so he sees this town torn apart by uh, by violence, by gambling, by this, this gang war that's happening that engulfs the entire town. He decides he has to fix it um, so the people can can survive so people like the old man who runs the restaurant continue to to live in a dignified way yeah as frustrating as uh political life in the u.s continually seems to be uh it's hard to appreciate good political order and the need for it uh when you're inside of it as soon as we're seeing right now as soon as you can't go to a hospital for a broken bone uh, emergency services aren't available doctors aren't available as soon as these things we rely on on our everyday lives sort of begin to shirk away things get scary right yeah in the town of Jimbo, there's literally nothing to do there besides uh gamble and visit some whores uh there's that's it the the hookers and the, the gambling houses are all that are open um, and that that doesn't doesn't really do a whole lot. The only person making any money, uh, aside from the two cartel owners, is the guy who makes the coffins. Um, he's the only person who's relatively happy with the situation. Um, and in the end, he also ends up coming around to the samurai side and being one of the one of the ways that he's able to win the final battle. Um, even with all of his uh, his of swordsmanship and his cleverness he can't actually bring peace to this town without the help of the old man and the casket maker um again the the individual as an individual is not nearly as powerful as he first seems and the samurai trying to end the culture of death reminds me of a lot of the discussion that's been going around uh about some of the coronavirus um policies particularly on the right you see it all over twitter uh i think the most widespread of uh these sort of articles and think pieces has been rusty reno's say no to death's dominion and first things uh where these authors are talking about 
us trying to adopt a or beginning to adopt a culture of death where we're prioritizing an end to lives lost from coronavirus above all else uh and particularly above uh i think as reno says uh the justice beauty and honor as many others say above economics and indeed agamben uh one of his big fears was that we we are prioritizing saving a few lives over economics and it's going to be take quite some time to see how statistics evolve from this and uh what in a utilitarian sense is providing a greater loss uh economic harms or or this disease but i i don't think the concern ought to be sort of a utilitarian calculation of value yojimbo demonstrates that when you're living in a context, a situation where there's no telling who's going to die, whether it's conflict between violent cartels or whether it's a non-discriminating uh, virus that that could uh, harm and kill anyone. The goal isn't to just maximize goodness; it's to end that uh, that culture of death and dying. The the possibility of anyone being being taken. Right. Uh, yeah, that I, I agree with that. And I think that you know, Jimbo illustrates that very well. Um, and sort of the difficulty of seeing how significant that making an end to that is as an, someone who's inside of that society. You know, the only people who are dissatisfied are samurai who comes in um, and the, the restaurant owner who, while being a resident of the town, is also not um, a member of either gang and only wants his restaurant to reopen just wants to be able to keep making money uh, to keep running his business like he would before um, so only these people that are outside of the actual um, the real battle are able to see how it needs to end of the various things we've discussed so far um, both Waiting for Godot The Lighthouse uh, Agamben's State of Exception and indeed I think even Yojimbo, none of the characters are necessarily choosing uh, to isolate themselves or be outside of society. This generally happens as a consequence of circumstances beyond their their control. While perhaps in the lighthouse, Pattinson did choose to begin working as a lighthouse tender. It was a choice forced on him by necessity and conditions in which he was in. Indeed, Yojimbo... It's dishonorable and is not considered, you know, a, a respectful position for the protagonist to be a wandering samurai without any sort of roots. In fact, that that's part of why the town initially is so wary of him, because a stranger, a, an individual that doesn't have a community is one that's concerning and, and should not and isn't welcomed by most most communities. So, so far, it seemed like there's no reason why one would want to isolate themselves, would want to expel themselves from society. But is that always the case? I, I think a great example of circumstances where one might want to be severed from society to some extent is that in, in the ideal life of a philosopher, and particularly the one depicted by Friedrich Nietzsche in his book, 
Thus spoke Zarathustra, in which a character, Zarathustra, tries to provide a philosophy of the future, to go beyond any of the moral codes that have been previously established. And using him, Nietzsche tries to represent what an ideal philosopher, untethered to any culture or tradition, could produce. And now, in various aspects, Zarathustra does mirror elements of the life of both Jesus Christ and Socrates. And Zarathustra has, is deeply uncomfortable at times with society. One of the fears of Friedrich Nietzsche throughout his corpus is that an individual wanting to be great or striving for excellence if they're in a political society with people who don't feel the same way or who are looking for other things, their virtue is diminished. They get debased, particularly in a democratic culture where everyone has some sort of say in public life. Nietzsche is afraid that virtue, greatness, great art, great literature is going to disappear because it, it's appealing to the interests of average people rather than than spectacular people. And so I think as a practical concern, some of this might might be very intuitive to us. Uh, there's been a lot of talk of people excited for the various works of art that'll come out from these uh, pandemic months, hoping maybe we'll finally have a, a, a new contemporary great American novel or, or play or, or... The next King Lear. Yeah, something, something phenomenal. And we look through history, many great works were uh, conceived either uh, during prolonged sentences in prison, during plagues, during conflict, um, during difficult circumstances when individuals had nothing else to do but be creative. But for Nietzsche, it's, it's almost more. And as a logistical concern, I think we're recognizing with the free time a lot of us have in this quarantine... There is more time for writing. There is more time for thinking, reading, watching movies you never got to. And so perhaps there is something to some bit of solitude promoting creative endeavors. There's also just sort of that classical image of the the artist as the outsider, right? Of, uh, you know, the great writer, the great painter, whatever, being the uh, basically locked in their room typing away madly or painting uh non-stop you know just really the that idea of sort of almost being uh too too tuned into your creativity to be part of society yeah certainly and and for someone thinking about political or social life it is hard to really evaluate it or be critical of it when you're in the midst of it. It's hard to, even in contemporary life, write well about, um, say, the elections or various campaigns going on, political, uh, any policy discussions, while we're in the middle of the discussion. You need some distance from it. You need to be able to separate yourself from it to think about it clearly. And so throughout Nietzsche's Zarathustra, the character has this habit of leaving cities, leaving the community he's a part of, and escaping to the mountains, escaping to the wilderness, to rather than the low, both location and, and nature of a city, 
Zarathustra Seeks Heights. Nietzsche writes, When Zarathustra was thirty years old, he left his home in the lake of his home and went into the mountains. Here he had the enjoyment of his spirit and his solitude, and he did not worry for it for ten years. And so being by himself with this sort of rich intellectual life Zarathustra has cultivated, he has been able to think and observe, perhaps look at the trees every morning, watch the sun rise, see the stars at night, and that sort of beauty that you can only get in nature is meaningful. But there is a difficulty to it. And as he says, after ten years Zarathustra did weary. At last his heart turned, and one morning he rose with the dawn, stepped before the sun, and spoke to it thus, Great star, what would your happiness be if you had not those for whom you shine? You have come up here to my cave for ten years. You would have grown weary of your light and of this journey without me, my eagle, and my serpent. But we waited for you every morning, took from you your superfluity, and blessed you for it. Behold, I am weary of my wisdom, like a bee that has gathered too much honey. I need hands outstretched to take it. I should like to give it away and distribute it until the wise among men have again become happy in their folly and the poor happy in their wealth. So just being by himself, Zarathustra may have the freedom to think, the freedom to observe. But the nature of an individual as a social and political animal pointed out to Aristotle, pointed out by Aristotle, comes out again. What's the point of work in isolation, art in isolation, if it can't be shared. For a philosopher, what what's the point of thinking about society if you can't teach other individuals and help to them be raised to greater heights and help educate them? Well, Plato sort of has an answer to that, right? In, in The Republic, Plato um, talks about how once someone begins, once a real philosopher begins their work, they will never want to stop doing that. They'll never want to interact with the masses again, with the other people, right? Sort of almost like philosophy and the pursuit of the good is an end in and of itself rather than sharing that. Um, and hence the philosopher king in Plato's Republic has to be forced to rule, has to be coerced into doing so, um, since they wouldn't want anything to do with something as... Uh, mundane as ruling a society ruling a society perhaps more more mundane than free speculation but plato certainly thinks i mean even in this own element the purpose of the knowledge even if it's enjoyable is limited if it can't be used to better society or to help individuals and it seems throughout that work the the republic the need to educate is is an important way of trying to learn and trying to understand it. And it does seem important. Socrates, the main character uh, of the work and uh, Plato's teacher, who represents the ideal philosopher in many, many regards, Socrates doesn't really isolate himself as does Zarathustra. He doesn't go and hide off in his study writing books all day. Rather, He's always out among the people, discussing in the public square, in the agora, always talking, always trying to educate and learning from one another's as well. I, I'm not sure that there really is any benefit to contemplation if the fruits can't be shared. Right. I think that makes sense. And I think that um, uh, another writer who sort of has that 
problem of what does one do with isolation and with the insights gleaned from isolation and ends up uh, falling on the opposite end of it is Michelle uh, Welbeck. Uh, forgive my horrible French pronunciation if that's not quite accurate, but his characters are always sort of enlightened pseudo-philosophers in a way who see sort of all the flaws in society and yet are too disgusted by that society that they see to want to do anything to better it. Um, or to better themselves within it, even. Um, really, the, the Welbeckian man, and it's always a man in Welbeck, um, basically just uh, has disappointing sex with women and then eventually dies. Um, that's pretty much his, his entire fate while contemplating how horrific it is that that's all he's resigned to, that's all that he can ever get out of life. And he... Uh, one, I guess you could say he never really fully does the philosophical work that Nietzsche describes in Zarathustra, um, but he also has no desire to try to share what insights he does have with with anybody for the sake of improving the world or the, for the sake of creating a society that looks better and is more satisfying to him. Certainly. Um, and, and this holds true for Wellebeck, not not just his characters, uh, I think a great example is the the very controversial, uh, but I think worthwhile novel uh, submission, where throughout the arc of the story, the character seems to be learning things and then unlearning things. And when it finally gets to a climax where the character might be able to make some sort of decision as to how to orient his life and whether he might be able to improve uh, his frustration with society, Willebeck drops the novel off and doesn't provide an answer, not not in the sense of trying to create some tension or mystery, but it seems that Willebeck doesn't think there is any answer. You are just stuck in, in this sort of unhappiness. Right. He sort of has this idea that at a certain point, society sort of moving in a direction and sort of gathered enough momentum that it cannot be uh, improved or move in a, a better direction at any points that we're basically rolling down the hill and can't be stopped and we're going to crash and burn no matter what. Um, and he almost seems to think that like this realization of, of how doomed society is, is almost worse than not realizing it. Um, but that ultimately nothing can be fixed or bettered. Accurately. I think Willebeck is given a lot of credit for uh, diagnosing some of the, the, symptoms of of the modern condition some of some of the fears and maybe neuroses we have in our contemporary life and it is noteworthy that all of his characters very much don't aren't physically isolated they are in the middle of paris or in the middle of populous areas in france and vacation towns where they are constantly around other people. Many of them have multiple lovers or colleagues, and they're never really physically alone. But in their interior life is constantly feeling isolated. They have all these connections, and as uh, particularly the character in Serotonin notes, the connections keep growing with the growth of digital media, but they still feel absolutely isolated and unable to connect with any individuals around them. Right, yeah, and he has really no... He basically thinks that it's... Or Welbeck's characters tend to think that it's... Or come, 
Welbeck's characters tend to come to the conclusion that it's just the way that society is currently structured and that sort of inevitable momentum has kind of pushed us to the point where real connection is entirely impossible, um, where it's not a fault of the character, but a fault of the society that the characters can't uh, fully engage with anybody else and feel so isolated even while, while existing within a crowded society. And while it certainly seems to be the fault of structuring in society, I think it's a little little sad and unfortunate that the Welbeckian characters don't just impugn the political organization or culture, they impugn every individual alongside it. They they think that their neighbors are gross individuals that they have no, no interest in. And the uh, um, uh, romances that are carried out by these men are wholly objectified. The The partners are are no more than objects of lust and and gratification that really isn't even pleasurable gratification right yeah his characters sort of tend to take sort of an opposite stand as the samurai and yojimbo um seeing the the disgusting society the society going horribly wrong instead of trying to fix it and trying to sort of save the people within it that can be saved and you know i guess in the case of yojimbo uh cutting up those who can't um the the Wilbeckian man just doesn't. He thinks that it's it, nothing can be done and chooses not to and believes that it's a fault to everybody else, especially everybody who seems happy. That's those are the worst kinds. Yeah, and I think Zarathustra is kind of like the the samurai here, um, in, in trying the best he can. And Nietzsche is not an optimistic thinker <laughs> by by any stretch of the imagination, and it. I'm not sure he believes that the philosopher, that Zarathustra, can really change people or society. Constantly, he's rebuked and having to escape to the mountains yet again and again. But it's clear that Zarathustra can't get any happiness or can't get out get any meaning without at least trying to improve those around him, without at least trying to educate and, and share. Uh, these conditions he's recognizing, whereas Willebeck might be popularizing uh, some sort of acknowledgement of him. He is saying these things are happening, but doesn't seem to care for any amelioration of the problem. It is just an absolute acceptance uh, of the state, which is is something that uh, Zizek in that piece we're discussing earlier talks about in, in these... Whenever we're faced with some sort of trauma or grief, at some point there has to be an acceptance of it. And whereas Zizek is promoting an acceptance of solidarity, of caring for one another, Willebeck is as nihilistic in his acceptance of these conditions as could be. Right. And I think another good contrast to the Welbeck perspective um, is this essay that you introduced me to by Joan Didion um, called Goodbye to All That. She wrote in 1967, a few years after she left New York, about why she left. Um, sort of it details her like, disillusionment with New York society and with the, the city and the, the people around her. Um, but the big difference between her and uh, a Welbeckian character 
is that she did something about it. You know, it was a very micro level kind of thing. It wasn't that she didn't she didn't set out to be be Zarathustra and change the entire order of society and re enlighten the people, but she um she left New York. She moved to LA and uh started a new life with her new husband, um instead of staying in a miserable situation, you know. Wellbeck the man, like the the writer Wellbeck, not the characters, um, who often are also named Michelle, but that's beside the point. Um I don't know why you'd ever get the two of them confused. Uh, but Welbeck, the the writer, uh, also has more or less removed himself from society, but all he does is smoke cigarettes and continue to write books about why society's fucked and there's nothing we can do about it. So uh, it's a it's a very, very different sort of perspective than um, than any that he's able to give with his work or his life. Yeah, and I think in the context of the discussion we've been having, it it should be apparent how noteworthy it is to actually extricate yourself from a situation, from a community, and move to a different one. Growing up as, I mean, yourself, now uh, a writer, an editor in, in New York, pulling yourself out of that community where everyone's generally working towards similar aims, where very much that is the center of the world, and anyone outside of New York is is an outsider, to purposefully pull yourself out and go somewhere else is sort of a, a scary thing, a, a difficult, difficult one, no doubt. Right, yeah, in New York, everyone always talks about leaving New York, but nobody ever actually does. It's kind of one of the things. So someone actually doing it and living to tell the tale and even being happy about it uh, and writing about it is pretty remarkable. Um, and it's interesting, too, that uh, Samuel Beckett, um, along with most other notable Irish artists, uh, writers and painters, Oscar Wilde, James Joyce, Francis Bacon, all also left Ireland um, and did most, if not all, of their significant work outside of uh, the dismal place that is Dublin, um, as I could say from the time that I spent there as well. Um, but uh, the that act of leaving a situ uh, a social scenario or uh, a micro society almost that one finds intolerable um is often all it takes or a large part of what it takes for a lot of these writers and artists to be successful um and to to do the work they ought to do or they've been trying to do um diddy and left new york city in 1964 um she and she had only written one novel before then, but afterwards goes on to um, write some of the most incredible essays and uh, collections of essays that have come out of America in the past, what, 70 years or whatever. Yeah, certainly. I, I am always impressed and surprised by just how impressed I am when, when I read her work and the, the way she's able to, how closely she observes everything going around her. It, is remarkable and i i'm envious yeah so at this point as we're all somewhat isolated from our lives but still able to uh skype one another from across the country and perhaps more connected than most of the people uh we've discussed despite our current quarantine we where was I going with that? Yeah, I didn't really think very hard about a conclusion. <laughs> did we? We're, we're trying to establish a creative endeavor. 
like Didion, hopefully have some fruits from our isolation and change in the normal flow of our everyday lives. We both hope you found this talk really interesting, and I don't know, perhaps some dose of isolation is good for the individual, but it, it seems that Aristotle may be right, that it, it's hard to to be humane, to be to be fully human, let alone flourish outside of any any community bonds and outside of a political order. So anything you want to add, Peter? Um, I just kind of want to highlight again that even though we are uh, quarantined and isolated in our own geographical and physical settings, um, we really are so much more connected than, uh, you know, someone like Samuel Beckett could have ever imagined being um, more tuned into the world around us than we ever have been before. Um, it, our... Our quarantine is not the same thing as isolation or even the same thing as solitude, really, uh, when it comes down to it. Uh, these isolated individuals that we have been talking about here look really nothing like us. We still live in a very well-formed society that's still functioning around us. Um, let's hope it stays that way. Yeah, let's hope it does. So we hope you enjoyed listening to our very first podcast and hope you stay along with us for the journey. Uh, hopefully each episode will get better and better and more and more insightful. If you have any feedback, any comments, or if you enjoyed this first effort, please leave a review or let us know. Thank you very much.